0: What is a pre-existing relationship? The easy answer to that is family, friends, um, you know, work colleagues, uh, people that you went to college school with. Um, those those are people that you would have a pre-existing relationship with. Where where it gets a little gray and where I get a lot of questions in this as well.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to the passive road to retirement. I'm your host, Andrew Jarrett. Today we are joined by Kyle Swafford. Kyle is an attorney at Robinson Francman LLP in Atlanta, Georgia. He represents private equity clients in the merger and acquisition of distressed assets and companies, and the turnaround of corporate operations. He represents real estate investors in acquisitions and dispositions of multifamily and self-storage assets, including due diligence, preparing purchase and sale documents reviewing title and any survey issues, and negotiating financing documents. He also represents real estate investors in the negotiation and formation of joint venture partnerships with equity partners to purchase and operate commercial real estate and corporate assets. Kyle, welcome to the show.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate it. And before we get going, I know that you probably have a lot of people that you were looking to interview as well. And I wanted to thank you for your time and and having me on. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, absolutely. No, it's a pleasure to have you here. So I appreciate you taking the time out as well. Um, so now maybe you can just kind of give, you know, those who, who don't know you a little background and how you got into, uh, you know, becoming an attorney and, and a real estate attorney at that.
0: Sure. Well, I always knew I wanted to be an attorney. I I, I joke about this, but I, I do mean it. When I was like 10, I think I watched Liar Liar with Jim Carrey with my parents and just thought it was hilarious. And I was like, well, I want to be an attorney, you know, and but ever since then, my life kind of always felt that way. I wanted to know what the rules were, why they were the rules, what was the point behind it, and I just kind of felt like everything that I was interested in kind of grew and it grew in that direction um, to to be an attorney. I knew that I wanted to be more of a business attorney, a transactional attorney, a corporate attorney.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, there are a lot of people that like the litigation side of it, and you know, a lot of my friends that are you know. Very sophisticated, knowledgeable, and and you know, great attorneys in the litigation space. I I find it more valuable to never get there as opposed to being good when that time comes. Right, like I would mm-hmm. rather have prepared a joint venture agreement that you know precludes certain matters so that my client can't get sued versus knowing how to represent him when he does. That, that, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's silly a way of looking at it, but that's how I uh, how I how I view litigation.
1: I'm sure um, clients would prefer that too. <laughs>
0: right, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, but that, so I always knew that I wanted to get into the, the more corporate side of it. Um, when all of my classes in law school would, would speak to that. Um, when I got done with law school at uh, Mississippi College School of Law, where I clerked for a Mississippi Supreme Court justice in my, in my final semester, I moved on to Gainesville, Florida for University of Florida's tax law. Hmm. law school program. So I I have a whole year where I specialize specifically in tax. And while a lot of it was tax centric, you realize how much of the corporate restructurings and the beginning phases of corporate development kind of are woven into the tax policy. So it's kind of like you were getting an extra year of corporate governance as well. Um, And then I slowly found my way into commercial real estate. For a time there, I was representing clients and litigation against the IRS, and I guess once I, I guess once I had my fill with the IRS, I turned my sights on the SEC. I don't really know <laughs> why I'm such a madman, but um, right. I've, I've, I got into commercial real estate, and I love it. You know, I think it's it's a great space, um, particularly the multifamily circle. You and I have talked about this, yep. you know, offline. But to to anyone listening that's looking to get in this space, or people that are, you know, already and it would attest to this, the The circle is a lot smaller than you think it is. Mm-hmm. And the amount of people, whether they're lenders, brokers, sponsors like yourself, Andrew, um, property managers, like everyone kind of knows somebody like the degrees of separation are, are, are a lot smaller than, you know, maybe in other industries or matters. Yep. And, you know, it's, it's just really fun. It's a really fun group of people to constantly work with people like yourself and other individuals you know it's not this cutthroat environment like you know stock brokering or anything like that you know everyone's on the same team that's why you have a gp team you know not a not a gp member right and Mm -hmm. once you once everybody realizes that that teamwork camaraderie component of it you know you just begin to realize the wealth and the growth and everything kind of spread from there so i just love this space um lucky and blessed to, to be here um and uh look forward to Constantly meeting new people in the area, whether they're you know a client or you know anything like that, I'm just always happy to continue to talking and networking in in this environment. And I've I've yet to come across anybody that I was like, uh, I don't know that you're cut out for this yet. Everyone everyone's really everyone's really fun.
1: You know, that's a great point. I was thinking I was thinking about that as you said that my transition from single family to multi. I mean, when you're a single family, you're pretty much all on your own. You know. Oh yeah. Uh, multifamily, it's, you can't do it without a team. That's totally correct. You know? Yeah. Whether absolutely. It's, you know, underwriting raising capital, you know, having an attorney on your team, CPA. I mean, you need, you need a team for sure.
0: And it, it's funny you say that too, because I always thought about this, you know, like episodes of shark tank where someone's coming in there and they're asking for a raise for a 20% stake and the sharks like, no, I want 40 and everyone's and, and, and everybody is like freaking out. Oh, I can't get 40% away. And I'm sitting here like, why? You know, yeah. I'd rather own five percent of a watermelon than a hundred percent of a grape. Like, what are we? What are we talking about, right? Yeah. Like, like yeah. <laughs> the whole team aspect makes this thing happen so much more efficiently. And, right. I, and I think you kind of see that in the multifamily space. You know, uh, the so the teamwork part of it. Yeah, you know, I just never really got that mindset of of keeping more of it. You know, and
1: mm-hmm. I don't, I don't. Yep. yep. No, I totally agree with you on that one. So. Now getting into commercial real estate, the burning question that you probably mm-hmm. get and I get from a lot of people, 506B versus 506C, mm-hmm. the major differences, if you don't mind maybe going through those for us.
0: Yeah, not a problem at all. So to, to kind of get to that point, I, I, I want to say first, you know, some people tend to think that to syndicate there's some sort of threshold barrier, whatever that may be, you know, maybe it's the number of investors that the the sponsor is going to have, or maybe it's the amount of the raise, like, oh, I can joint venture at $300,000 and then I'll syndicate, you know, $500,000. There's not this, while there is no bright line rule per se, it, it's really about whether you're issuing a security or not. Mm -hmm. So before we kind of get into the syndication side, I want to explain why you get there. So if you have if you have investors that are seeking any sort of profit ownership or distributions of any kind based on the work of someone else, i.e. you, you're issuing a security that needs to be syndicated. Mm -hmm. So now that doesn't mean that you can't have people in a joint venture that are bringing the capital, but they need to have an active management in in the company. And what I mean by that is, you know, they need to be on those monthly calls with each other. And, you know, are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? Whatever your renovation plan may be or refinance may be or what, what have you. I don't know what your business plan calls for. They need an active role in that management. A, an active role would not be a, a yearly vote on some sort of matter. I wouldn't even say it would be quarterly, you know? So I just wanted to mention that you get to syndication by way of issuing a security, not by some amount of uh, investors or uh, some sort of monetary reasons. But just having said that, the difference in the 506B and the 506C largely is 506B allows for accredited, and non-accredited, or a way I remembered it when I was starting out is 50 C 506C. Sorry, 506B is for both accredited and non-accredited, whereas mm-hmm. 506C is only for accredited. That C there kind of yep. kind of sticks. So that's the way that I look at it. With a 506B, you can have as many accredited investors as you'd like, but you can only have up to 35 sophisticated but non-accredited investors. Um, and you're not allowed to advertise on any sort of social media or electronic presence the offering itself. You must did have you, a pre-existing
1: um, mm-hmm. did you describe the sophisticated investor too, real quick, just for people?
0: I was gonna loop back. Okay. But yes, and, and the and the final point to a 506B is you must have a pre-existing relationship with these and with this group of investors or your or your network. So kind of getting back to, well, what's a sophisticated, non-accredited individual? Well, it's anyone that's not an accredited individual. So someone that's accredited, for example, would have a million-dollar net worth excluding their primary residence. Or if they're single, they made $200,000 for the last two years with the reasonable expectation of making $200,000 this year. If they're married, it's $300,000. That's your typical accredited investor, you could have these entity accredited investors that have, you know, five million net worth or their specific trust institutions or banking institutions or fund institutions like retirement programs and whatnot. But, but typically when we're talking about an accredited investor, it's some, it's an individual meeting those net worth requirements. So a sophisticated but non-accredited investor would be someone that perhaps is, has the disposable money is, has been in the finance world before, is at least educated in the current economy of affairs and understands the offering that you're uh, describing. Someone like maybe me, for example, You know, I, I haven't made $200,000 three years in a row yet or with the expectation of doing so, so I would not be an accredited investor. However, I would be sophisticated. And that's not because I'm an attorney and draft these documents. They're, they're just throwing that out there. Um, I would not say that a sophisticated investor is someone that you know in your neighborhood who just inherited seven hundred fifty thousand um, uh, dollars because of their mother's life insurance policy, right? Like that's that's not quite what we're talking about here. Because while that person may have the funds that they, you know, could lose, do they fully understand the risks and disclosures that are going into and that are inherently present? in commercial real estate investing. That's kind of the key that you want to look for. Now, I'm I'm not suggesting that, you know, you got to give uh, every investor some sort of test to make sure that they know what you're talking about, right? Or (laughs) do you know what the current interest rates are? What was the Fed (laughs) saying this week? I'm not saying that you need to do that, but I I think that when you're doing a 506B, which again is with people you have a pre-existing relationship with you kind of know the ones that can afford the risk and not are sophisticated enough to understand what's going on because that's probably the ones that you would have gone to anyway
2: mm-hmm. you know
0: as as you probably did yourself when you were getting started a lot of books and 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 coaching says okay name name 20 people name the first 20 people that come right. to mind that you think would you know be into your commercial real estate investing dream right yep. I, I doubt of the 20 people that you wrote down any of them would not be considered for sophisticated in, in this space, right? You probably wrote down people that you knew you could go to that would at least understand the conversation to begin with. So you kind of use good judgment there. Now, as far as we're talking about what is a pre-existing relationship, the easy answer to that is family, friends, um, you know, work colleagues, uh, people that you went to college, school with, um, those those are people that you would have a pre-existing relationship with where where it gets a little gray and where I get a lot of questions in this is well, 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 what about someone that I met recently or you know I met at a at a conference of some kind that wants to kind of get in on the deal? You know the I, I will say this the the SEC has yet, nor will they. Probably ever issue some sort of guidance defining a pre-existing relationship because the nature of human interaction is so on a case-by-case basis. Anyway, how can you define? How do you define friendship? How do I define friendship? Right? right. Like it's it's going to be different in every way, right? Right. So what what we have always recommended to our clients is what we call like a a, a three-touch rule. So you meet somebody and whether it's through your website or some sort of interaction. Um, you, you tell, you just mentioned that you're in commercial real estate. They want to hear more about that. You set up an initial call where you find out more about them. What is their occupation? Are they married? What's their spouse's occupation? What are their real estate investing goals? What are their investing goals? Period. Do they currently have any investment properties? Um, what's their net worth? You know, things that you would probably know if, if you had known this person through college work or otherwise. Right. So that's sure. the first touch. Okay. Is you found out more about them. And then after you find out something about them, you tell them about yourself. Right. And then you do a follow-up a week later. Hey, you know, thanks for that time. Um, I just wanted to reach out and see if you had any other questions. I really appreciated it. You know, I enjoyed talking to you and your wife, Martha, and mm-hmm. you kind of just are laying out that you recall information about that, about that conversation, which is one good to, on making a personal level, but two, it, it's kind of a paper trail that you can show that you do know this individual in case it's ever asked by the SEC. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be like the second test. And then the third one would be, hey, I know that a previous deal um, you weren't able to get in on, but another one has come available. Would you like to know more about it? That's the third test and you're good. So you you've met them, you followed up with them and stayed in touch. You get your potential investment for them to come in on. um, And that's and that would be your third touch. And we would feel comfortable defending that every single time. Right. Um, And then the no advertising and general solicitation requirement outside of, you know, you what I mean by you can't share this on public webinars, electronic means, the Internet. I mean, hey guys, Kyle Swafford here of Blue Delta Capital and I have this deal going on right now. I'm issuing, you know, shares at this price. Let me know if you're interested. That's a clear violation. What I tell people though is you, you, sh- you can't get in trouble for explaining something that if someone's asking you, you know, about your day or how things are going. For example, let's say you're, wed- you're at a wedding reception. And someone says, Hey, uh, Andrew, you know, how, how you been? Oh, good man. Staying busy. You know, things are going great. Yeah. You know, your mom was telling me that you're in commercial real estate now. Yeah, actually we are. Things are really ramping up. I know it's a odd time right now, but you know, we've got a LOI submitted on, you know, a, a property and, and, you know, we, we hope we get it. Um, oh yeah. You know, where might this property be? Oh, it's, um, you know, it's in Houston, Texas something along those lines, we haven't really conveyed anything. You know, you haven't said that you're raising capital on it. You haven't mentioned any of the terms. You're not like generally just taking the mic, you know, and uh, at the reception and say, hey, guys, come talk to me at my table over here. You know, you're just telling them generally about what's going on in your life. That's fine. Once you, you know, you kind of know what when you get to it, whether you're generally soliciting this offering or not.
1: Recording are so, returns or something, right? You know, we expect- Yeah, whatever, get down into right, exactly.
0: You know, exactly. So again, just to kind of recap, that's the 506B is like, you you cannot have more than 35 non-accredited but sophisticated investors that you have a pre-existing relationship with and you can't generally solicit or advertise it. 506C is wide open. You can advertise it. And any means that you want to, you can rent a a plane to make smoke in the sky (laughs) if you want to
2: Um,
0: blaze it across the heavens. Um, You can generally solicit it to people that you know, or don't know because the verification process is going to come from a third party. So they are all going to say either by their attorney or by their accountant or an independent third party verifying why they're accredited. And that's where you, that's, that's where you start seeing like the advertisements or, you know, any ads or anything like that. That's where that starts coming into play. So uh, I hope I answered your question there and kind of the the key differences between those two.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And some follow-ups I had too. One, one question I had for you was on the three touches, um, how should people keep records of that? You know, what kind of records? And is there a time limit on how long you need to keep that?
0: You know, I wouldn't say there's a time limit because the, it would only it would only come up if the deal went south and that specific investor you know reached out to the s e c right? So this is probably what i would this is just what I would do and and again, I'm a little more careful by nature, so you may say oh, that that seems like overkill. well, it's gonna it may save you so why why right. not? I think if I were meeting with you for the first time and I asked you, you know what your what your goals are, what your occupation is, stuff like that. Well, I would email my notes to myself.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So then I have a record of when I spoke with you, what we talked about, right? And then I send that follow-up email to you, you know, sometime down the road using that email notes that I've already saved so that I can kind of put it in there, right? So what I've done is I've created this paper trail this timeline of when we spoke, what the notes were, doing the follow-up, And, and whatnot in terms of keeping it, I mean, the email is never going to go away. Right. So it's not like you have to like print it and save it somewhere or anything like that. Um, But I I think that would be a good way of illustrating your process. And if you're doing that every single time you say, here's what I do for every single person. I think that that goes a long way to the extent that you had, that you were across the table from a SEC agent Asking, you know, how do you, how do you justify this pre-existing relationship with this individual? Did that answer your question?
1: No, yeah, that's a great point.
0: That's, that's a good true. safeguard, I think, to have in there is mm-hmm. the follow-up, the email, the communication, um, you know, the, the note-taking process, emailing it to yourself. That way, you know, you don't take these notes and, and clean off your desk one day and throw them away.
1: Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Now, on, the, on validating the accredited status, uh, I know there's third-party companies that do that as well. Do you typically know what the fees are on that? And then have you seen people try to do it themselves and, you know, any, any uh, guidance on that?
0: You know, you, you can only, if, look, if someone is going to make up a law firm letterhead saying that they're accredited just to get into the deal, there's no way you could have gotten around that, right? Like you're, you're allowed to rely on reasonable means, but it does have to be verified. Um, Typically. You know, an, an accountant would probably do it for that particular investor, maybe 50 bucks. You know, an accreditation letter, an attorney, maybe about this along the same lines. I don't know, maybe attorneys bill $25 more just for the sake of it. But, <laughs> um, you know, that would probably, I think that's the easiest way to go about it, effective way to go about it. But if you, if you Googled independent third party uh, 506C accreditation companies, there's hundreds. I mean, there's, there's so many to choose from. Uh, As far as what the fee is, um, I I can't imagine it's north of a hundred dollars. I'd be real shocked. I'd be real shocked because there's so many of them and it's a very simple process. Like all you got, all the investor has to do is show his net worth portfolio or show his two previous, uh, tax years or tax returns with his current pay stub. Mm -hmm. So it's not a real heavy
1: lift. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Now you deal. It's kind of become popular the uh, fund of funds, and I know you deal mm-hmm. with this quite often. Um, how does that work? And you know what are your what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's mm-hmm. a good idea to start one, or you know what do you what do you think?
0: You know, I it, it depends on the person that I'm speaking with. You know, when we're when we talk about syndications and getting into commercial real estate, one of the one of the first things I would ask someone that's getting getting into the space is well. Do you think you could capital raise? And and give an honest answer here, you know, feel free to take a second. Like do you like do you think you could raise a a mil, 1.5 million dollars in 3 weeks time with with very little difficulty? Sure. If they say yes, I typically try to steer them at least initially as a fund-to-fund capital raiser on someone else's syndication and the reason i I'd, I'd suggest that is if you have capital people with a deal will find you True. right like yeah. that, that that won't be a problem mm-hmm. however just because you underwrite a deal and have a good deal doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get all the funding for it and yep. typically if you can capital raise on someone else's deals even you know yours for example um, you're going to be with a sophisticated sponsor by that point who, and you're going to learn how to effectively implement a business plan. If it's value add knowing when and how, and what's the, what's the typical cost? Like, I don't know if you've dealt with this before, I would hope not, but you know, someone like you probably knows the average cost to either do a light medium or or full renovation on an apartment complex. Well, when you go to make that, when you go to implement that strategy with your underlying property manager and they come back with a bid of $5,000 north of whatever that would be, well, that's going to be a red flag to you because you probably know that they're getting a kickback from the contractor that's doing the work, right? Right. Somebody doing this for their first time wouldn't necessarily know that. Mm -hmm. So they might miss things like that. So the the point I'm making as a whole is that you get in with a sophisticated management team that effectively runs this business plan. You get to learn from that. And you're and you're obviously staying a part of the management team and group and voting on matters yourself, um, but but you kind of get this but this free education you can't get anywhere else, you know, from a, from a team that's that's done this before. That's a rare opportunity. So if people yep. can raise capital, I try to. That that doesn't mean you can't learn on your own or get a co a co sponsor on a deal that you underwrite. Of course, that's also a possibility as well, and and it mm-hmm. quite often happens. by... By the nature of it, because a lender's going to require a KP on the on the deal anyway. So that right. that's a lot of times solves itself. But you know, capital raising can just can open a lot of other doors for you just quickly. Now, the same rules apply to a fund-to-fund fund as it would a direct-to-asset syndication, right? So when we were talking about syndications earlier, we were talking about forming a company to raise capital to specifically purchase a piece of property right. with a fund. A fund. We're we're raising capital to invest in a syndication, right? And the the disclosures are a little different there because you're not you're no longer talking about the direct acquisition and ownership and management of an asset, but the deployment of capital into a fund for the purposes of generating revenue. So it's a little bit it's a little bit different. Um, I think that funds of fund of funds provide a valuable. Um, mechanism for capital raisers, because, you know, for example, let's say that I'm a GP sponsor, Andrew, and I want you to raise the entire $3 million that I need raised
2: and you bring your investors to the deal. Well, now I know who your investors are. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And
0: on the next deal, what if I, I have all their contact information now it's on the subscription agreement. Yep. If I reach out to them, right? I don't really need you anymore.
2: Yeah.
0: So it, now that would be a horrible way of doing business, and right. I, I, but you'd be surprised that happens a little more than 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 not. Now I think typically the people that would pull some. You know, swindling nonsense like that are typically going to find themselves out of this space sooner uh, than later. Agree. Um, but but it could happen, or God forbid, you know, they say, you know, you go capital raise for us and you'll get thirty percent of the GP. You get all the ducks in a row, and then they bump it back down to fifteen. Well, what do you what do you do, right? So I'll address that in a second. But you the 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 beauty of the fund to fund is that all of your investors are investing over here. And then the fund is investing down in the syndication, signing a subscription agreement. So the other GP individual won't know who those investors are. So it it protects you from being removed from deals otherwise, and it still affords your investors the anonymity that they may value, anyways. So that's the that's the major component of a fund to fund. And I, I you know I get it. You know some people may say well if i come in on the gp team they're already spending x amount on a syndication and then if i have to do this you know is it is it just spending a lot of money i mean maybe i don't know like what what's it worth to you to keep your investors to yourself i mean that's only a question right, that yeah. you can answer right i have a i have a client that on a closing wouldn't even give her investor list to a lender
2: really? and you're just
0: going to give it and you're just yeah uh and and you're just going to give it away to another gp sponsor I, I don't, I don't, I don't see why you would do that. So now the way to get around some of that, uh, some of the prevention of, you know, decreasing this otherwise agreed upon, uh, GP split, what, what we recommend and actually talked to someone about this today, it's funny, um, is making a side letter. So, you know, Andrew would send a side letter to me saying, you need me to raise $3 million. if I do raise the three million dollars, then I would receive thirty uh, percent in the in the GP company and have an active role in the management of the company, right? Sure. Um, and and you could even say and make it pro rata, meaning you only raise two, you get twenty. You did, you know, whatever. Like you can right. you can make it. You can figure out what the core terms are there, sure. and the, and that gives you comfort because now you know that you're locked in on what you need to do and. I would think if you're sending me a side letter like that, then that, that tells me you can close. So it kind of makes everybody kind of work together and know what the terms are. And sometimes, you know, terms can just be forgotten. You know, if you're a sponsor, if you've ever been a sponsor and have been stressed about raising capital before um, or, or just initially, you know, you've probably had thoughts with different people. Um, and, and you may not know what you, what you said at any given time because you talked to seven different capital raisers just to see if they were interested, let alone that they actually said yes, right? You've probably right. spoken to 12 to get confirmations from four to iron out the details with two, mm-hmm. right? You may, you may not remember what you said, and, but that's the, or I may not remember what I said, but that's why you bring me that side letter agreement so that sure. we can iron that out. Yeah. Um. I hope I kind of answered your questions there on on fund of funds and and kind of uh, a higher viewpoint of of kind of like how how that's worked in this space.
1: Definitely. And the side letter is a great you know a great point because it can get confusing when you talk to so many people trying to remember you know the agreements and what you what you said.
0: So, right. And and I do want to be clear too. You know when I say get a percent of the GP team or the, or the GP entity, you know, you still have to actively participate in the management of that company. You know, I'm sure that that underlying management agreement will have some sort of, the members will vote pro rata on their membership interests you, you still need to do that. And the reason I say that is because the SEC doesn't allow you to get anything for brokering capital, right? Like that's, that's against the law. Yeah. So now, but you, but you know, if you get voted out, you get voted out. Like, you know, like if you get, or if you get outvoted on a particular matter, then then that just is what it is. But you, but you got to be in these, you know, monthly calls with the GP team and, and voicing an opinion and whatnot. If they're just going to give you some GP cut and kind of you know, go go sit in the corner. The adults are talking. Right. I I don't know that that's really the type of deal that you want to be in, um, because you, you're not really complying with the with the SEC. And if and if and if we're doing that already, then how how are we going to handle further further deals? So just yeah. be mindful of that. I'm saying get a cut of the of the of the company, but you still actively participate in it. Right. Yep. And okay. actually, just uh,
1: that was one of my questions, just to prove kind of how serious. A violation like that could be. Do you know what some of the consequences could be or anything you've seen, you know, somebody get in trouble with with them with the SEC? Well, none of
0: none of our clients have ever run into those situations because we steer them away from it, you know, with sure. with, with great intent and reason why. Um one what, what, I, I can say this, it, it's kind of like having an IRS audit. Um if the IRS is auditing you on 2017 and 2018. <laughs> That's just going to complicate things in 2019 and 2020, right? And then you're going to have to source that and validate why you did this, that, and why you're doing it now. And it, it just kind of slows down everything. Well, if the SEC is looking into you on, you know, I don't know, syndication fund one, well, they're naturally going to ask, are you in any other syndications? Yep. If so, what are they? Well, now they're going to look into your syndication two, syndication three. And then if you're and then if you're capital raising with another group, for example, like where it's a 15 million dollar raise and you're bringing three and this person's bringing three and, you know, Raquel's bringing three and all these people are coming together. um, That entire GP team is going to be slowed down because the right. SEC is like, we want to know more about this. You know, like right. it, it, it gets to a point where by the time they're investigating you, it just makes you so dead in the water that you can't further along your career in this space. And it's yeah. just not worth it. Right. It's just not worth it. It's not worth it for a GP stake. It's not worth it to try to get that pre-existing relationship with somebody I mean, just the 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 sheer. I mean, God, to defend yourself against an SEC investigation—that's easily going to be twenty grand, easily.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, it, whether retainer or hourly, it doesn't matter. So it's it like I said, it's just not worth it. Yeah. Um. You know, just stay away from that. You you don't need to get into this space that bad. Right. Um, that would be my bad advice.
1: Yep. Totally agree. Now, what um, you know, you deal with a lot of a lot of investors, sponsors. Do you have any, you know, maybe two, three, or whatever, common mistakes that you see people make before maybe they come to you and you kind of teach them <laughs> what not to do? You know, so,
2: yes and no. Um, typically, a
0: someone starting to get in, into this space, you know, may may not know the difference between uh, adequately prepared purchase and sale agreement for made by an attorney. Versus signing the, the the boilerplate broker PSA agreement.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Never ever ever sign a a broker PSA and and call it a day. Yeah. Um, the reason why is there are no seller representations and warranties. Is the rent roll accurate? If it's not, so what, what? What what's it to them? They they didn't rep and warrant that. Mm-hmm. All they're probably repping and warranting is that we're a valid entity. We can authorize this transaction and and you know we're located in the blah blah blah, right? But the actual truth and verification of these documents, the rent roll, the T12, the bank statements, all that. What what if it's just a lie? And yeah. you can get shady sellers sometimes, and it's not that the broker's doing anything inappropriate. The broker just you know to my understanding is gets paid one or two times at the execution of the psa and at the closing so if they can put together a five page purchase and sale agreement and put it in front of you well that that's what they're going to do right whereas we would make a purchase and sale agreement that makes the seller rep and warrant certain things we're going to fight for a financing contingency because this market is insane right now <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: uh you know, the economy, the Fed, the interest rates. We actually talked about this privately before we, we got on. Um, I don't know if you're doing this right now, but you know, most LOIs are being submitted with financing contingencies now. Oh,
1: yeah, we definitely because,
0: are. <laughs> yeah, because lenders, you know, we have we, a lot of retrading was happening before this took place, right? So for example, you know, we would have clients that gotten a great deal in March that that did not make sense anymore with May interest rates. So a lot of retrading was happening. Almost 10% retrades were happening left and right. And that, that was pretty rare for us to do at the time, but it, it almost became every week we were retrading, retrading, retrading and negotiating because the interest rates changed so much.
2: Mm-hmm. Well,
0: the natural evolution of that is, well, now that's gotta be addressed in the PSA. We're not gonna retrade anymore. We want to state it up front, there's a financing contingency that's not a financing contingency there's no way in hell that's going to be in a broker contract right, right so that's yeah. kind of the way that that's kind of the way you want to go about it so don't don't sign broker psas if you if you have or if you're going to cuz look you know maybe it's a you know maybe it's a, a a $1 million property you know you can sign the broker psa but get your attorney to a draft an addendum to the psa which says here the seller and repra- seller reps and warrants the following things one two three four five six seven you know at least get some sort of coverage you yeah. know like I, I get you know it's not particularly cost effective if the purchase price is so low I, fine I, I guess I can be open to that argument but do something don't just sign a seller uh, excuse me sign a broker uh, contract um, another thing that I think uh, new sponsors Probably do is, is that I don't think that they initiate a, a, a hurdle, an IRR hurdle in their offering like they need to. And um, a hurdle, as you know, is kind of where if we have made your money back and some in, in a quick and effective manner, it used to be a 70 30 split. But if we get you a 16% return on your money within a certain amount of time, it goes to 60 40. Mm-hmm. Well the reason why that's important is you're probably refinancing out of this property in year 2 or year 3 so hitting that IRR hurdle happens almost you know within half the time of your business plan and you're otherwise leaving money on the table that could have otherwise been there for you and for you to make them that kind of money there's a real value in having that win-win relationship you know you I should probably do a podcast for you, on you and you telling me all this stuff, but you know, you so much goes into the underwriting, so much goes into the due diligence, so much goes in the interest rate caps, uh, insurance, loans, um, capital raising, dealing with the uh, you know, the, the investor relations, mm-hmm. just to close, then to close a doing the business plan right. discussing whether we refinance now and you know making sure that your loyalty to your investors mean that you know you'll take a job bartending before you lose their money right like right. you you got to make sure that the deal makes sense for you as well that that's all I'm saying and and if you can do that in part with a win-win scenario by implementing a IR hurdle I think you got to do it, I, it it's but I can tell you that the 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 clients that I have where an IRR hurdle is not implemented are are newer in, into the space and they slowly grow out of that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the financing uh, contingency. I didn't tell you this, but we just lost a deal. Actually, we went in same purchase price as the other the other buyer, the other group, and uh, we lost it because we refused to waive the financing contingency, and they they went in with no, no contingency, but you know, today alone, we're looking at maybe 75 basis point raise. I mean, that could be a big deal.
0: <laughs> oh, I know. And I think too, look at us, uh, speculating about the future here with our crystal balls, but, <laughs> you know, I, I think what you're going to see is that a lot of people made a lot of money buying in 2018 and 2019 selling high in 2020 and 21. I think what you may see is a lot of those people that bought in 2020 and 2021 not anticipating and really stress testing stress testing their underwriting mm-hmm. are going to see the downfalls of that in the upcoming months and quarters. Because if they didn't stress test that variable interest rate at 8% for an entire six months, and or not getting the rent increases that they thought they were going to get, you're going to start seeing a lot more properties on the market. And oh, yeah. what has been a seller's market is about to be a buyer's market. Probably. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I, I obviously I'm never advocating for anyone to lose or, or anything like that. But I I think that people that might not have anticipated an adequate underwriting process or, in, or did not anticipate what could happen. Um, and did not have an a- adequate underwriting process are, are about to see that, you know, they, they might be under right now, you yep. know, with the way the interest rates are going and may not be able to cash flow it like they thought they could And And I think you're going to start seeing a lot more properties become available for that
1: reason. Yep. I believe I, I heard this was like the fastest interest rate hike in history as well. I mean, they're raising mm-hmm. rates extremely aggressively. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really good point. Um okay, how how would somebody contact you? Do you have an email or a phone number? How do they how do they find you?
0: Sure, absolutely. So um on LinkedIn you can find me. My name is Kyle Swafford, K-Y-L-E, S W A F as in Frank, F as in Frank, O R D as in David. Um, my LinkedIn profile is a bit more professional. I don't look like some hipster in Nashville about to go brewery hopping or anything like that. Um, but that's, you can find me there on LinkedIn. My cell phone is 662-588-1990. Um, if you want to reach out and have any questions kind of getting into the space, and you can also reach me via email at Kyle, K-Y-L-E, at R-F-L-L-P. Law.com One more time, Kyle, K-Y-L-E at R-F-L-L-P law.com. And if you do uh, hear about me because of this podcast episode, or I believe a YouTube channel as well, Mm -hmm. uh, please, please reference that so that I know that where you came from. And I have some sort of context as to kind of where, you know, my name came up into this. If you just say, Hey, Kyle, I heard about you. I don't know if that might have been at a conference that we might have both attended or anything else. So referencing this podcast would go a long way, and we'd really appreciate that.
1: Great. So now we get into our, our Five to Thrive section. Uh, okay. Basically, you know, word association game. So I'm just going to rattle off five words, and you just kind of give me the first word or phrase that comes into your mind uh, based okay. off that word. The only caveat is you cannot repeat the same answer.
2: you cannot repeat the same answer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So the first one is capital raising, uh, power and leverage, multifamily real estate. The best time to start was yesterday. That's a good one. <laughs> Syndications. Easier than you think. Passive income. Well, your selling point, <laughs> right? Yeah, to investors, <laughs> exactly. And Kyle Swafford, just a, a a transparent guy. Um, you know, I've, I've never really thought of myself as you know uh,
0: Kyle Swafford, this you know sophisticated commercial real estate you know attorney in Atlanta, Georgia, and all that. I'm just I'm just me. You know, I happen to do that. Um, you know, I just try to be transparent and honest with clients because that's what I'm expecting of them. You know,
1: right. um, so you know, I, you definitely are a great resource. I mean, I would recommend everybody reach out to you. That's for sure.
0: Uh, thank you, Andrew. I, I appreciate that. But yeah, just a that's just what I am. Just a I'm just a guy from the Mississippi Delta that's here in Atlanta, and you know, I'm looking to help as many people as I can and get to know as many people as I can. So yeah, just I guess who is Cal Swaffer just just down to earth guy.
1: I don't know. Yeah, I like it. Thank you. Sorry. No, no. Well, I appreciate it, man. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the, on the show and it was a great episode and, you know, thanks for being here.
0: Absolutely. Andrew, thank you again for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Welcome back everybody. We just have a little update on our Kyle Swafford interview. So the SEC has changed uh, some things on converting uh, a 506B to a C while in mid-raise. So we just wanted to update you guys. And uh, Kyle's back to kind of go through that with us. Kyle, thanks for coming back on. Hey,
0: man, thank you. Uh, Appreciate that, Andrew. And yeah, when we we first spoke, the SEC had released that, you know, it it was an option to convert, but it was kind of like, you know, whenever you see tax policies change where, you know, Congress has said, you know, we're going to limit the research and development tax credit. And then people relying on that are like, okay, well, how are you limiting it? And then, you know, a year and a half later, the IRS says, well, this is how we're going to go about it. And then everybody's kind of amending and nobody really knew what the implication meant. And, the, and since the ruling came, there's been a lot of clarity on what that looks like. So basically, as we'll as have been discussed, you know, previously in this recording, let's say that you have a 506B offering. It's important to distinguish this is a B to a C. Not a C to a B. You cannot go backwards. So follow the alphabet B to C. Okay. So when you start with a five or six B, let's say that you need to raise five million dollars, right? And between your network of investors, you're at about two and a half million, maybe half of it, maybe you're at four. Whatever your number is, you can't. You've you've recognized that you cannot re- meet the rest of it, and maybe you've capped out the thirty-five non-accredited investors. So another capital raiser that could have helped you. Um, would have relied largely in part on non-accredited. And there's the cap and and that doesn't work either. Well, one of the things that you can do is convert that 506B to a 506C. Now, it's important to note that if you do that, you're terminating the 506B. So when you terminate it, you can no longer take subscriptions from that 506B offering. So if you've got a non-accredited investor that you know, has said, yes, I'm interested for $100,000 and you go to convert and or or you've converted and you terminated, you can no longer take that $100,000 anymore. You want all of the non-accredited investors to be fully subscribed and fully funded. The reason I distinguish the non-accredited is because the accredited investor could have been in either deal, B or C, but a non-accredited investor, you're going to want fully subscribed so that there's no... um, so there's no uh, question as to whether when that officially terminated. One thing that we recommend doing, and let's use like some dates here, mm-hmm. but you know, depending on when you hear this recording, it can change. But let's just assume we're starting October 1st. Um, you've got your PPM documents on October 1st and you're sending them out and you know ahead of time about what your soft commits are going to look like. So you say, OK, October 15th, we're going to terminate the B. That's our plan. Right. Maybe you give that a couple of days. Maybe it falls on a weekend, whatever. But you but you give that that's your date. That's your plan, at least. So what you want to do is you want to have something like maybe a company resolution um, put in the minutes and and everybody, all the members come together and agree on that or the management team comes together and says, OK, on October 16th, we're no we are we are terminating on October 15th starting Mm -hmm. the 506B offering on October 15th. Starting October 16th, we are only going to pursue uh, investments through a 506C offering. Accordingly, the 506B is terminated and um, we will now issue Class C units, right? Maybe you had Class A units for your investor. Now we're creating, you know, if there's a thousand shares left over or a thousand units left over, you're going to say we're you know, terminating the thousand remaining class A units, converting them to Class C units, and the Class C units will be available moving forward. So what does that look like from an SEC compliance standpoint? Well, you have class A units or B units, whatever you had, you had mm-hmm. a class of units for the 506B offering. You have an entirely new set of units for the for the new 506 C offering. You have a company resolution clearly indicating, you know, that um you terminated the B and you went forward with the C, um, and then all subscribers moving forward are getting C units. So it, it's not only is it clear from the date of the subscription agreement and relate as it relates to your company resolution, but the the unit itself is different than previous units. So that's where um, you know that's how that we recommend going about this. You know, obviously, if you indicate to your attorney mid-raise that you need to do this, you know, you might need to amend the operating agreement as it stands, okay. allowing the manager the right to do this so that the manager can go about it. You know, we're we're noticing this happening more and more because, you know, maybe your investor pool um, is a little skittish given, you know, um, either the political climate or the economic climate right now, and mm-hmm. maybe you need to uh, solicit, Uh, maybe you need to advertise to close. We're seeing far more conversions now than we have before. In the Hmm. same way, you know, a couple of months ago, you saw more retrading than you ever had because interest rates rose, right? Right. Now you're seeing more conversions in large part for the same reason.
1: Okay. One question I had, so I guess you don't have to go back to your initial class of investors and have them refile paperwork, right? It just automatically transfers over to the new shares?
0: It it just automatically transfers over. Now, keep in mind you were doing a 506B offering. So when that closes, you need to go ahead and file your Form D and your Blue Skies on the investors that came in the 506B offer. When you've converted, you now have a 506C offering. So now you need to file a a Form D for your 506C and new Blue Sky filings for the investors moving forward. So you're not filing on anything previously. Like, mm-hmm. let's say it was a $5 million raise and you did two and a half and two and a half. Well, when you convert, you're not doing a raise of 5 million. That was already covered in the B. So you're doing a raise of 2.5. Okay. So in the same way, when you go to do your blue skies, you're not listing the investors that have, been, that have previously come in. Now, suppose an accredited investor that was in the B says, hey, I'm willing to give an extra $50,000. And then he comes in as a C, you would list him right because that's a new offering but um i think i, I think i kind of made the point there yeah. um mm-hmm. but you you it's two separate offerings two separate form d's two separate blue skies
1: okay cool awesome well i appreciate it yeah that's great information to have especially like you said it's happening more and more now so um mm-hmm. and this is slated to come out next week so it's actually perfect timing good
0: <laughs> okay. well perfect okay. i appreciate it
1: cool all right thanks Kyle appreciate the update
0: Absolutely. And then one more time, actually,
1: how can, if you don't mind giving your contact information one more time?
0: Sure. Uh, People can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, My email is Kyle, K-Y-L-E, at rflplaw.com, Robinson Fransman LLP. So Kyle at com. My cell phone is 662-588-1990, 662-588-1990. And if you don't mind mentioning this podcast or this interview um, as like a subject line or in the voicemail or anything like that, just to kind of let me know where you heard about me so that it kind of helps me figure out what I discuss in that moment so that I kind of have a context as to why you're reaching out. That would be greatly appreciated.
1: Great. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Kyle. Talk to you soon.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.